God, those communists are amazing. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Turn Lots of Podcast. I'm Mike, he, him. And tonight I'm here with Sterling, he, him. And Ward, he, him. And I guess tonight is David, he, him. And he runs the Type 1 Dialectic page on Instagram. How you doing, David? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Good, man. Is that your only social media or would you like to plug some others? Um, I'm also on Twitter. I have to actually look at the handle because I was kicked off recently for calling JK Rowling a cunt after one of her turfy comments. Uh, but oh, I'm, yeah. I'm back. I'm back. Yeah. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at T1 Dialectic. Nice. Yeah, I think I wanted to, to compliment you on that username. I think it's incredibly clever, Type 1 Dialectic. And also just your whole shtick with your page. I love, obviously, leftist memes. I consider myself a connoisseur of them. And what you're doing with your page where it's like diabetes and medical justice related, it's, it's fucking perfect. And I'm really a fan. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. So uh, tonight, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about diabetes and just medical justice and all the horrors of being a person with diabetes in a for-profit healthcare system. So let me pull up my notes here and uh, we can get started. I have a couple of things that we can read through. But um, I did want to ask you just first and foremost, like if you could maybe give uh, our listeners like a brief description of what life is like as a diabetic person having to combat a for-profit healthcare system, what your experience has sort of been like. Yeah. So I might go off for a minute here because there's, there's, so, Perfect. Much, there's so much to cover. And I feel like so much of the so many of the inadequacies that we face and so many of the problems that we face come from a lack of understanding what this disease is actually and what it entails and all that stuff. So well, you know what? Um, sorry, but if I could just interrupt you for a second, David, if you could. One of the things I do have in the notes is an entire article that describes the differences between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. But I figure you could probably give us a shorter layman's version of that. And if you could, would you mind? Because I'm not even clear on that myself. Yeah, sure. So that's actually a good place to start. Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease. It is actually extremely rare. Now, given how many people there are in a place like the United States, that still amounts to millions of people, but it only affects about 0.04% of the population. Hmm. And how it develops is that you have some kind of antibody response. So let's say you have a virus or something like that. Your body creates antibodies to fight that virus. And then healthy tissues in the pancreas, which produce insulin, get destroyed in that process. So it can happen to, even though sometimes you'll hear it referred to as juvenile diabetes, or people think it's something that only happens to young people, it can actually happen at any point in your life. Like I was 34 when I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Um, yeah. So it's an autoimmune disease. Your beta cells in your pancreas that produce insulin get destroyed. And when that happens, those cells never really come back to life. And even if, even if they do start to regenerate again, those antibodies are still there and they'll attack those tissues. So what's so important about what's so important about insulin, everybody needs insulin to survive. It's a hormone that basically opens up your cells and allows glucose to get into them. And if you don't have insulin there to facilitate that process, then sugar starts to build up in the bloodstream and can cause all kinds of things like blindness, amputations, uh, kidney damage, all kinds of organ failure. And I mean, if, if you do not take insulin therapy, you'll within a few days, if you have this disease, be, be dead after a certain point. So, yeah. so it's not a choice to take insulin. You have to take it for the rest of your life. And again, this is a hormone that everybody needs. It doesn't matter if you eat low carb or whatever. It doesn't matter. Everybody needs insulin all the time because your body is fueled by glucose. Even if you're on a ketogenic diet, even if you eat zero carbs per day, your liver will pump out a bunch of glucose because your brain needs it to perform and stuff like this. So mm -hmm. that's type one diabetes. Type two diabetes is much more common. Type two diabetes and prediabetes, these are metabolic conditions, which affects in a place like the United States now for reasons which we can get into is, is affecting like as much as 10% of the population. Jesus. Um, yeah. So 
there are varying degrees of it. Most people who have prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, they don't require insulin therapy. But what it is essentially what's going on is that your body still produces adequate amounts of insulin. In fact, sometimes it's producing too much insulin, but your body cannot use it properly. So the cells that are designed to store glucose, like, I'm sorry, there are cells in your body that are not designed to store fat, like your, your liver and your muscles. Mm-hmm. And due to certain genetic uh, predispositions, as well as environmental factors, as well as very uh, caloric dense diets that we're eating and the sedentary lifestyles that we're living all kind of factor into this. But essentially what happens is cells that are not designed to store fat get filled up with fat. Insulin is not able to transport glucose easily into those cells. And then blood sugar starts to build up. So these are two totally different conditions. Type 2 diabetes in most cases can be treated either with like diet, exercise, pills. There's like pills like metformin and stuff like this. In more severe cases, it may require insulin therapy, but not always. Most people who have type 2 diabetes overwhelming amounts of them do not require insulin therapy. They can use much less uh, intensive therapies to deal with this condition. And that's really common. Mm-hmm. And part of our struggle, and I might be jumping the gun a little bit here, but part of our struggle is people with type one diabetes and getting people to understand how important it is to have access to insulin is obfuscated by like the fact that type two is so common and everybody knows people with type two diabetes and they see, oh, my dad takes some pills or my grandma right. went sized and lost some weight and she doesn't have to take insulin. So they're really two completely different conditions, two completely different diseases that really should have different names. They only have similarities as far as some of the negative outcomes they can have, but they have completely different pathologies. That was something I was going to ask you about, but I didn't want to get too sidetracked. was like, if you encounter people who try to sell you like holistic lifestyles or natural cures for this and other kind of like woo-woo bullshit, because you know, that's very popular right now, especially among the anti-vax crowd, which is a huge fucking movement at this point. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a ton of that. Like all the time I get unsolicited advice from people who have never had to live with this condition. (laughs) And I, and I, and I know that they know nothing about it because again, I was like 34 when I was diagnosed Mm -hmm. and it's weird because you hear this term your whole life, like diabetes, but like we all have massive gaps in our knowledge that like we're not aware of. And it didn't really dawn on me that I didn't understand what this disease was until I was diagnosed with, even when I was diagnosed with, I'm like, oh, what's the big deal? Like, I'll give you an example. Like a friend of mine, I don't know, maybe four or five years before I was diagnosed, him and I were supposed to go do something one day and he hit me up and he's like, man, like I can't do it. My niece was just diagnosed with type one diabetes. And I remember thinking like, well, that sucks, but like, what's the big deal? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, she has to take some shot, you know, you have to take shots. Like a lot of people think the hard part of this disease is the physical pain of taking insulin injections or something like that, where it's like, honestly, I don't give a shit about like that. That's really like not what you're dealing with at all. I'm sure you get used to it. Yeah. It's really not like when I think of all of the difficult parts of having this disease, it's not even one that comes to mind. Like if I could just like, without thinking about anything else, just inject myself a few times a day with insulin, like it really wouldn't be that big of a deal. Um, there, (laughs) there are a lot of other things. So anyway, there's just a lot of there's a lot of ignorance surrounding this condition. So it's a condition everyone's heard of and people think they know what it is again, probably because of the relevance of type two, mm-hmm. but um, it's, a, it's a fairly rare condition that there's just like a lot of basic knowledge about it isn't understood, which is a huge barrier for us. Well, so that actually raises a couple of questions for me. So the other half of like that anti-vax crowd, that's so annoying about like suggesting you unsolicited remedies that don't fucking work and just like literally breaking the law by giving you like unsolicited fraudulent medical advice, but whatever. The other half of that is that 
there's a lot of victim blame that goes on because like before your description of the difference between type one and type two, the only description I had really heard was just a colloquial description from like, I don't know, like a friend or something who said type one is like a genetic type. And then type two, you got because you were a jerk and you like had a terrible diet, and you didn't exercise, or whatever. And that just really speaks more to the American kind of mindset of blaming everybody for societal conditions, which we have an article that we'll uh, read a little bit later that describes exactly why it's wrong to fucking blame people for not being able to access like a healthy diet or exercise the way you think they should. But it fits very well with the American individualist mindset and the whole, you know, I'm going to ignore COVID because I'm all about personal freedom and anybody who dies from it, well, they were just meant to die. Like they weren't healthy or they had enough comorbidities that we can, they, yeah, they did something eugenics mindset. Yeah, they did something stupid, you know, you're either born with diabetes or you have like the diet of a campground raccoon and then you get it and you deserve it. <laughs> but I mean, so David, you were starting to mention what makes it so much more difficult than just taking a bunch of shots, because I'm imagining it comes with the difficulty of carefully monitoring everything that you eat and measuring out those shots and everything. So if you could describe that a little bit, and I have a feeling that that will lead us into what is probably the most difficult part for most people, which is affording the medication, which should not be so difficult. But if you could tell us a little more about like what your day-to-day experience is like. Yeah. So it, it's a very, um, I mean, you, you pretty much nailed it. It's, it's a very intensive thing. It's like essentially you're given the job of being like your own fucking nurse mm-hmm. and keeping yourself alive, like on life support for the rest of your life. Like, and there are no breaks from it. So it's like, there are two different kinds of insulin that I take. If you take injections, you'll take two different kinds of insulin. One's called basal insulin. The other one's like uh, bolus insulin. So one is kind of running in the background. It's taking care of the glucose that's produced by your liver throughout the day. And then there's another kind of insulin that I have to take every time I eat. So I have to calculate the carbs. Okay, I'm going to eat something. I like weigh out most of my food. If I eat at home, I'm going to eat 100 grams of carbs. It's going to require this much insulin. And if you're eating out or something like that, or you're just kind of free range eating, you have to just take guesses about, okay, I think I'm going to take this much insulin for this amount of food that I'm going to eat. And that's like a very difficult process and it's, there's no perfection with it. And if you overshoot, like a lot of times we'll end up taking too much insulin, your blood sugar can drop to levels where you lose consciousness. And it's like, I've only had this disease for like less than four years. And in that time, like I've already had like several like near death experiences because I've just made wrong guesses about how much insulin take. But not only that, all kinds of things affect how much insulin you need. It can change from day to day, like depending on how much exercise you do, depending on what you've been eating. And it's not just carbs, like fat and protein play into it. Like you end up having to learn a lot about nutrition, about exercise and all of these different factors, even the weather. If you get sick, like one of the reasons why a lot of us are deathly afraid of COVID is like, not just because like, oh, we're going to get sick and we'll die. Like a lot of us are in pretty fucking good shape Apart from this disease, because we have to take care of ourselves because we're really afraid of, you know, ending up with these health consequences from our disease later on. Yeah, real quick. Just one thing I want to mention that we can touch on sort of towards the end, because I imagine we'll probably talk about it for a bit. I don't want to do that now. But the recent article that came out, I think it was last week that said that they've now found that children who get COVID are much more likely to develop diabetes later in life, which is fucking terrifying, especially the way you describe it. It's like, and and I don't want to just talk about that now, but just since you mentioned like, people being terrified of COVID and rightfully so. Again, just because I like to harp on the fucking death cult mindset of the American right here. Sorry, what's up? No, I'm already freaking out. Like he said, he got diagnosed at 34 and I'm like, man, I turned 30 next month. I can get any time. I can just have this. Like I'm already freaking out about that. I'm already thinking I have it right now. That's how much of a hypochondriac I was in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man. I mean, it, it can happen to anybody. That's the thing is, 
I've seen the same data that you have about that. And there's been recently people have been posting about that, but this was something that was known early in the pandemic and was something that I worried about right away. Like my sister has MS also, her and I live together. My dad has Parkinson's. My mom has lupus. We all develop these autoimmune diseases within kind of a short period of time. I don't know if it's related or not, but anyway, I have some understanding about the way that these diseases develop. And essentially like that's all you need is some kind of novel infection. You get infected with something, your body tries to fight it off, creates antibodies, and then some tissue gets caught in the crossfire. And then you have some kind of other medical problem. Like Mm -hmm. for people like us, it's really scary. Something like COVID because we don't want to end up on top of all the management we have to do and how difficult that makes our lives, we don't want to end up with another autoimmune condition. And if you already have one, chances of you getting another one are a little bit higher. But so anyway, we, I kind of got off on a tangent there, but it's, it's important Sorry. that people know it's okay. People, people need to be aware that these autoimmune diseases can happen to anybody and that something as simple as a virus or getting sick like that can cause these things to happen. I was saying though, like even getting sick and stuff like that can make insulin therapy very difficult too. There are so many different factors that can affect it. And so we're always constantly going through these struggles. There's times where you're at work and your blood sugar drops so low, and then you've got to like eat some sugar and recover from that. And then 15 minutes later, you're totally brain dead mm-hmm. and just had like a near death experience and feel like not talking to anybody. And you have to just fucking carry on with your day. Like everything's normal, you know? And, yeah. and then all, all the while, while you're dealing with all these struggles, you're also dealing with, you know, medical costs, dealing with insurance, fucking all the ableism that you encounter all the time, people downplaying shit like COVID and stuff like this. It's really weird. Like you have this disease that really takes over your life, takes over every single aspect of your life. You can't get away from it. There's no breaks. It's going on constantly. And yet everyone seems to think for some reason that it's not a big deal. That like, ah, it's not that big of a deal. You just got to inject insulin or whatever. But there's also this weird thing there too, because right, like all these people I know who downplay it, they think, oh, it's not a big deal. Even people I'm close to, I know they don't take it seriously. If I died from COVID, let's say, those same people would be like, well, you know, he had diabetes. So oh, geez. this is weird fucking place to be in, you know, having this disease that requires such constant attention and effort. Yeah, there's just no way to really convey how much that puts a strain on your mental health and how much it affects just everything that you do throughout your life. Yeah, I mean, that's the impression I get from your page because it's like, it's just obviously just not something that I would think about on a daily basis as someone who doesn't have diabetes. But then I see your memes and it literally is like you said, it's like a job that you have now taken on because of how much effort it takes. But then to have it compounded by a failing medical system that makes it more difficult for no fucking, well, not for no fucking reason, for reasons of profit, because of who benefits from it. And that's, yeah. you know, then the next thing we can talk about, obviously, and I think that's going to get to the main topic of our episode, which is why we could talk about it on an anti-capitalist podcast. but. What is so outraging about it is how cheap insulin is to produce. And I did put an article in here in the beginning before I realized how long and uh, kind of dry of an article it was. It was like on a, on a Canadian university's website. And it was just about Dr. I guess it was Banting who discovered insulin. And I just wanted to ask you if you happen to know off the top of your head, was this a similar situation where he discovered it and then put it out in the world to not be for profit? Or am I confusing him with Jonas Salk who discovered the polio vaccine or something? No, I, he actually did the same thing. And actually, interesting connection. Banting was like very much pro-Stalin and pro-communism. Oh, fuck yeah, dude. I found some stuff recently and I posted about it. I was just laughing so hard. Yeah, at that time. I mean, of course, this was before World War II started and all this stuff. But he was like very much about their system because it was 
it wasn't based around profit motives. And and he, as a research scientist, just like thought that was the best thing. He's like, fucking finally, there's this environment where like science is like held to like the place where it should be. It's elevated to like the point where it should be in a society. Um, so awesome. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, like, apparently he came back from the Soviet Union and he was just like calling everyone comrade and people were like, dude, shut the fuck up. He's just like, <laughs> oh, he's, like, he's like really annoying people with it. Um, dude, good. He was like the first turn leftist podcast, dude, like LARPing all the time. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, he was. It's pretty fucking funny. He so <laughs> this guy. Yeah. So he him and a couple of other research scientists at the University of Toronto, they discovered this drug. So they they had gone off of some other people's research, but they were essentially like taking dogs off the street and like ripping their pancreas out. And then like, <laughs> it was pretty fucking brutal, man. and pretty fucked up. But like they were getting dogs and taking their pancreas out and they were figuring out, okay, when you take their pancreas out, their blood sugar levels are going up. So you're creating diabetes. So the pancreas must be somehow involved in regulating this hormone, which is causing you know diabetes. So they figured this out. They made an isolate from it and after they murdered enough dogs and did all this, did all this extraction, they ended up like finding an extract that worked that they can inject into people. So before insulin existed, basically you just starve to death. Your body just eats itself because it can't get fuel from food. So it just starts consuming itself. So they would send kids to camps to basically starve to death. They put them on a very low calorie diet and hope that they could, you know, make them live for a few months or whatever. That was the treatment before this. Um, and that's why it was so urgent. And that's why that's why I think he didn't have a problem, you know, killing all those dogs and all this because yeah. of the urgency of it. And this was something that had been plaguing fucking civilization for thousands of years. So yeah, he once they figured this out, to him, the main thing was like, we need to make sure that insulin belo- doesn't belong to me, it belongs to the world. We need to get this out there. And because Eli Lilly like had the means of production, he was essentially like, hey, I'm gonna sell you the patent for one dollar just to make sure that it like gets out there. And Eli Lilly from fucking day one, like never really held up their end of the deal. They were like, Oh great. Yeah, of course we're going to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And um, immediately started creating these like barriers, <laughs> you know, to, to access. Of course it wasn't nearly as bad as it is now, but yeah, he sold the patent for a dollar. And uh, unfortunately Eli Lilly is still one of the only producers of insulin in the world. And um, was very much involved in, in the rapid acceleration of, of the pricing. Yeah. Well, I mean, so that brings me to uh, this one article that I have here in the notes is the insulin racket and it's by Natalie Schur in uh, 2019. So I was going to read through some of that because that was the impression that I had. Like I thought I sort of remembered seeing somewhere that, yeah, I'm glad I wasn't just confusing that with uh, Mr. Salt, but to hear that he was a fan of Stalin just warms my heart, buddy. <laughs> but yeah, let me get to this article here and we'll talk about exactly why this is so fucking ridiculous that this shit costs money at all. So let's see, Nicole Smith Holt and her husband, Recalled how their son, Alec, died of diabetic complications in 2017. On June 22, 2017, Alec Rayshon Smith, a recently promoted restaurant manager with type 1 diabetes, left his local pharmacy empty-handed. He'd gone in to pick up a month's worth of insulin supplies, which he assumed would set him back around $1,000. The amount he and his mother, Nicole Smith-Holt, had budgeted the month before when he turned 26 and, under Obamacare rules, had to drop off of her insurance coverage. For Alec, the price was already steep. Even with his promotion, he was making $35,000 a year with no benefits. Ian Smith-Holt had combed through Minnesota's Obamacare marketplace for months in search of a decent plan, but the affordable ones all had sky-high deductibles. That meant that he'd be paying full price for his insulin for months before his junk insurance kicked in, on top of hundreds of dollars in monthly premiums, sucking up some 80% of his take-home pay once he paid the rent. So he made a rational decision. He'd go uninsured, save the cost of the premium, and just pay for his meds out of pocket, while racking up work experience that could serve as a springboard to a better position with health insurance. 
As it turned out, it wouldn't have made a difference if Alec had been insured or not. The price of his insulin had apparently gone up again to $1,300, which was more than he had in his bank account. Perhaps he felt embarrassed, too proud to borrow money so soon after finally moving out of his parents' place. Perhaps he didn't want anyone to worry about him and figured he could keep his blood sugar down until payday. So he left. He never told his mother, and he never told his girlfriend. Five days later, he was dead. The autopsy later determined the cause of death to be ketoacidosis, a complication of diabetes typically brought about by not taking insulin. Recounting here in the news of her son's death, Smith Holt didn't quite put everything together at first, wondering if Alec had inadvertently taken too much insulin, inducing hypoglycemic shock. Quote, rationing insulin never even crossed my mind, she told me. Quote, it wasn't until later, when the medical examiner said to me that Alec had absolutely no insulin left in the apartment whatsoever, every single pen he picked up was completely empty. And he was amazed by how many pens looked like they had been tampered with, like he was trying to extract whatever little bit was left in them. In the two years since her son's death, Smith Holt has fought alongside diabetes patients and their allies to make insulin the public face of the drug pricing crisis. The story of how an otherwise healthy young adult could die of a $300 shortfall in an apartment full of mutilated insulin cartridges in the richest country on earth is 100 years in the making. It's a story of what happens when a country delegates both the provision and financing of life-saving drugs to an oligopolistic private industry, and then prioritizes that sector's business interests above patients. If the grassroots organizers of the Insulin for All campaign get their way, it will become the story of how the diabetes community can force a political reckoning with the ever-rising prescription drug costs that dominate their lives. Now, this was the case that you wanted to talk about specifically, David, right? Because I think this one is particularly tragic. Yeah, I think, I think that it has all the components of like exactly what's wrong with the system because every political ideology in this country like wants to like use our struggle to like, you know, fucking get people to vote for them or whatever, like make Mm -hmm. it seem like they give a shit about us. But like every single time you hear about, oh, Colorado or some state passed an insulin price cap, like it only affects people who are insured. Like Alec didn't have insurance. So it wouldn't have fucking helped if they capped the price of insulin at $35. If that only affects people who have insurance, you know, you can't even just go to the pharmacy and be like, hey, sell me some Humalog or Novolog or whatever insulin he was taking. Mm-hmm. He didn't even have that option available. And also, I think another key part of that that people like leave out or like people don't focus on it, but it's just like the pride that people have, like no one wants to ask for help. Mm. That's, that's also, I think, a product of like the system that we live in. And like, you know, all the time, I think people, especially like people who are like young in their 20s are just getting their independence. They feel guilty about asking for help or they don't know where to look for help or it really has all the components though. It's like insulin, super expensive, can't get fucking insurance. Yeah. Even if there was price caps, it wouldn't have really helped him. And then, yeah, just the inability to like to reach out and and ask for help in that situation. Yeah. I mean, that's why this is so fucking outraging because it's like, and they lay it right out there. Just $300 was the difference between this guy's life and yeah. And, and I mean, let's say that the guy had the $300 even for the, for the vial of insulin. Like if he doesn't have insurance and he doesn't have an active prescription, then what he's going to have to do, he's going to have to like go pay $80 or whatever to go to a fucking walk-in clinic and go see a doctor, have them write a prescription. Mm-hmm. Like they could just sell this shit over like, like in, in Canada, which is like, Canada is just like the same shit that we have going on here in a lot of ways. But like in Canada, at least you can just walk into the fucking pharmacy and be like, Hey, can I buy some Humalog and some syringes? And they'll just sell it to you. You don't need to prove that you're like diabetic or that you're in diabetic ketoacidosis or anything like that. Well, I mean, that's why I wanted to read this one particularly because, spoiler alert, I mean, the end of the article, the mother realizes that she could have just crossed the border into Canada and got some of this and saved her son's life if she had only fucking known that she could do that. And she just yeah. didn't know. And it's so fucking tragic. Like, I can't, the fact, like, 
this country is a fucking atrocity. Before I get too outraged, I'm going to have to just continue with the article because I will start screaming. But um, <laughs> they go on. Today, some 30 million Americans are living with diabetes, a chronic disease caused by the pancreas being unable to properly metabolize carbohydrates, leading to high blood sugar levels. Likely cases, judging by a telltale constellation of symptoms, including weight loss, frequent urination, and insatiable thirst, are speckled throughout medical texts dating back to antiquity, but were virtually untreatable until the 20th century. For most of history, a diabetes diagnosis carried with a death sentence within mere months, a duration that could be prolonged only slightly with near-starvation diets that kept blood sugars low by practically eliminating food, the tactic Holt imagined her son must have tried when he couldn't afford his meds. Fortunately, a modern diabetic's outlook is far sunnier. A patient can expect to live for decades if their disease is properly managed. For 7 million Americans, treatment entails several daily doses of insulin, a synthetic version of the hormone excreted by healthy pancreas. For type 1 diabetes patients, uninterrupted access to insulin is especially critical. The health outcomes depend heavily not only on taking proper doses, but on minimizing variance between blood sugar levels, an imperative that demands a vigilant routine of measurement and monitoring, often facilitated by supplies and multiple variations of insulin. As type 1 patient Laura Marston described to me, quote, imagine you have to live your entire life just as you do today, but you have to play a game of Tetris 24-7 on your cell phone. Is that what it's like, David? Yeah. I mean, I wish it was that enjoyable because I fucking love Tetris. But yeah, yeah, she she nails the point. It's like you're constantly just having to check, well, what the fuck's my blood sugar? What time am I going to eat? Yeah. It's just just constant. It's like there's no getting away from it. It's not a game that type 1 patients can opt out of. Just a few days without insulin can be deadly or trigger severe complications like gangrene or renal failure. But its crippling cost makes a mechanized routine increasingly difficult to pull off. Most type 1 diabetics use two or three vials of fast-acting insulin a month plus a secondary basal insulin on top of any necessary supplies. But the wholesale prices of most common insulins tripled from 2007 to 2017. Three pharmaceutical companies that manufacture insulin, Lilly, Novo Nordisk, and Sanofi, raking billions of profits annually from insulin sales alone, with the U.S. market accounting for 15% of global insulin users, but almost 50% of its worldwide revenues. Let me reiterate that. The U.S. market accounts for 15% of insulin users, but 50% of the worldwide revenues. Yeah. Like, why does the U.S. have so many fucking statistics like that, where we're 5% of the world population and 25% of the world's prison population, where we're like 5% of the world's population, but 50% of the world's COVID cases? Like, it's so weird that we keep having these fucking atrocious results from the greatest country in the world. Isn't that weird? Like, <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, it, the United States is just the most extreme example that anyone can imagine of the end result of capitalism. It's like, I mean, it, it's, it, I mean, it's just such an extreme example, like at least in places, whatever. I mean, like you can sit here and fucking harp on like how, how fucked up these like social democracies are around the world, but like, at least there's some effort to like, be like, okay, we're not going to let people that's, we're going to draw the line of, like, letting people die from rationing insulin when there's like fucking millions of vials of it just sitting around, you know? Dude. I mean, every fucking day in this country feels like being on the Titanic, but you're on the part that's like way high up in the air right before it makes its death plunge to the bottom. And everybody's like, what are you talking about sinking? We're way up higher than we were before. Like, yeah. Dude, just arranging deck chairs. Yeah. Everybody's <laughs> just arranging deck chairs. All right. So media coverage tends to frame skyrocketing insulin prices as a betrayal of the miracle drug's origins, the definitive account of which was offered by historian Michael Bliss in his 1982 classic, The Discovery of Insulin. In 1922, months of exhaustive experimentation, surgically removing dogs' pancreases to induce diabetes and reinjecting them with an extract made from their former organs finally vindicated the efforts of an orthopedist named Frederick Banting and a small University of Toronto lab team. So this is what we already talked about. I can think I can skip a little bit of this. But he says, realizing the significance of the drug, three members of the Toronto team sold their patent rights to the university for a dollar apiece in an effort to protect its integrity from greedy commercial enterprises. Oh, I'm sorry, you guys. Didn't work out. Yeah, thought. Um... <laughs> Determined to prevent Islam from becoming a business racket, the Toronto team kept Lily at bay through months' worth of repeated attempts to collaborate. The university had been doing its best to manufacture Islam on its own, 
but struggled to meet the demands of even the small group of patients participating in early trials. What limited supply it did produce was subject to shortages and contamination, which Lilly reps were all too happy to emphasize in making their case that a professional, scaled-up manufacturing operation was in the best interest of diabetes patients. Eventually, Banting and his team reluctantly agreed. Lilly was granted exclusive rights to manufacture and distribute insulin in the United States for one year, with European rights going to a Danish firm called Nordisk, later merged to become Novo Nordisk, as it is known today. Thereafter, both firms were entitled to patent any future innovations on their product, and competitors were hypothetically free to enter the market. Okay, so this is where we'll get into why it started to decline. So for nearly half a century, the price stayed relatively affordable for U.S. patients. Arguably, it was precisely this lack of price gouging that allowed Lilly to maintain de facto dominance over the U.S. insulin market, even after their period of exclusivity had ended. Rival firms had no real incentive to compete with an already entrenched, scaled-up manufacturer whose prices were already relatively low. Moreover, there was reason to believe that the Department of Justice was prepared to intervene on behalf of exploited diabetes patients after leveling small antitrust violation fines in 1941 to three players in Lilly's insulin supply chain. The delicate circumstantial balance that kept insulin prices low for years began to wobble in the 1970s, when a broader neoliberal turn in politics set the stage for the pharmaceutical industry to become the single most profitable sector in the American economy. I feel like we could have an entire podcast just about how bad neoliberalism is. Like, we started there and we could just stay there forever. Like... Oh, yeah. We should yeah. just do an episode on that one. Day. <laughs> so is that why you don't see like actual competitors? Like there's no way for someone to basically create something even close to insulin without stepping on the patent? Is that the issue? I think that that's a big part of it. So in the early days when it was first discovered and for a long time, the insulin that we were getting was it was extracted from like pig or uh, bovine pancreas. And that's how it was for a long time. It was just produced that way. Then later on, they developed human insulin, which was like a synthetic kind of insulin. You can still get that. That's what you'll hear people refer to as Walmart insulin. Mm -hmm. uh, you can still get it. You can go buy it over the counter. It's like 25 bucks a vial in most places. You can get it. You can still use it if you want to. I wouldn't suggest it. And then now we will have... It, well, sorry, just real quick. Will that not save your life if you're like in danger? Like I feel like that's a good thing, right? Or no? Yeah, it, it is. I mean, I would obviously, if you're in a situation where your blood sugar is really high and you have to make a decision and you have the option of going to Walmart and getting Walmart insulin, of course, I would suggest doing it. Can you um, not live on it though? Like what's, what's wrong with it exactly? So, so, so the kinds of insulins that they have available at Walmart, they're basically obsolete. And the reason why they're obsolete is there's some shortcomings to them. They're far less predictable. They take far longer to kick in. Uh, um, they're not as, they're not as good for, if you want to eat like a, a well-balanced diet, it's kind of harder to do with that stuff. Like it's better to eat foods that digest more slowly. Like it's just a real fucking pain in the ass. And, and also like, I think a lot of people probably that have died from rationing insulin were probably thinking, okay, if I get to a certain point, I'll get that. But if you're used to like, I've never used any of those insulins. I just know from talking to people from reading about this stuff, but Making the transition, if you're used to one routine, and I had already talked about like that this is really complicated and there's all these factors and all this stuff, and you gotta think right, about right. trying to figure out something like that when you're in a desperate situation and your brain's not really working right because your blood sugar's all fucking high. Yeah. It's like not ideal or appealing. So I can see even people in that situation being like, wait, just hold up, I'm gonna wait till I can get the kind of insulin I'm used to using. Right. Right. So modern insulins have been out since like the mid-90s, I think is kind of when the transition took place. So Novo Nordisk came out with Novolog and Eli Lilly came out with Humalog. And those insulins are basically the same. Those are the modern insulins that we're dealing with. Those insulins started out at like a reasonable price. It used to be like $25 or $35 for a vial. 
and now has gone all the way up to three hundred or more dollars per file. And the way that they get around that, and why it's been so hard for other drug makers to get into the market. Number one, these are biologics. They're not made the same way that other chemicals are made. So they have to take like E. coli and they have to like breed it like this. So it's a much more complicated process. There's not as many manufacturing firms out there who are, who are doing this kind of work. That's part of it. The other part of it is that they are constantly patenting different parts of the process. So the way that they get around having to open this up, like the generic laws don't apply because it's a biologic, then their patents aren't expiring. Because let's say they're going to come up on, okay, 20 years, our patent's going to expire. Here, let's patent a different part of the manufacturing process. So the barrier to entry for another company to come along, it's just, it's just too much. you know. And they, yeah. have, they already have a stronghold. And it's not just that, the relationships between the insurance companies and the drug companies and what they're going to cover on their formulary and things like this gets really complicated. So for another corporation to just get involved in that, there's just too many obstacles that another company wouldn't want to take on now. Here would be an interesting place to bring up. There is an organization out of out of Oakland, which is like a, a nonprofit startup called Open Insulin, and they have been back engineering. These are like scientists who just for fun. I mean, not just for fun. Obviously, they have <laughs> they have like goals here, but I mean, just out of the goodness of their heart, have been right. trying to back engineer Humalog and also the basal insulins like Lantus. And the eventual goal with that is not just to prove that they have a way to do this, but find a way that's repeatable and easy enough for people like me to get together with a group of friends. You start a facility where you're like, you're making it for your community or whatever like that, and then you can distribute it. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, you're paying you know, five or $6 a vial. So there are people who are trying to do the work, but as far as like, yeah, the business end of it, it's just not that profitable because of the infrastructure set up, the patents and all of that stuff. Well, I mean, you actually summed up pretty well the next four paragraphs that I was going to read. So I will skip through those where they talk about how they originally made insulin from pigs and then now have Humalog and everything. But now this will get into more of like why the, the price gouging and why this is such a racket. So because private insurers are fundamentally ill-equipped to negotiate drug prices, another for-profit industry began to rise in the late 1970s, promising to do better. So-called pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs, act on behalf of multiple insurers to negotiate with drug companies as a group, which theoretically gives them more leverage to buy in bulk. But there's mounting evidence that this isn't how PBMs work. Ward, could you ever think of a scenario where like, capitalism works really well on paper, but then doesn't actually work in practice because there's like the human element because it doesn't work with human nature and there's like collusion. Ah, capitalism just works, bro. What are you talking about? <laughs> Only in Economics 101. So to continue, yeah, you know that textbook that no one ever has, but they reference <laughs> that one. Yeah, that Adam Smith book that they've never read. It's funny because I think like a lot of criticism that people here have against whatever socialist governments or whatever is like, oh, it, it's such a, it turns into such a fucking bureaucracy every time. And it's like, dude, what the fuck is a pharmacy benefit? <laughs> no? Yeah. Where did I leave off here? Okay. So this isn't how PBMs work. Because they often get paid in rebates from drug manufacturers, they're often incentivized to keep prices high, the opposite of what they exist to do. Lilly has claimed that despite rising prices, the price that has been paid for Humalog fell over the past five years because of all the rebates captured by the PBMs. I mean, that's that's a weird thing. I kind of want to unpack just that sentence because it's like, so the, the pharmacy benefit managers get paid in rebates from the drug manufacturers. So the higher the price of the drug, the more they will get paid because those rebates will be a bigger, a bigger amount because they're percentage, I guess, of the drug sales. So it literally, that's the perverse incentive right there. And it's like, I don't know. I want to say like, how do people not see it? But it's like, that's the fucking issue right there. And like, it had to have been set up that way to begin with. Oh yeah. It's a feature. 
I almost like I almost try not to think too much about the pharmacy benefit managers and like just take them out of the equation. And the reason why is because I feel like they're a fucking distraction. Like I'm not saying that they're not there and that they're not part of the equation. Just another layer of complication to obscure it. Exactly. Like the insulin manufacturers love to point to them. Like anytime you start criticizing fucking Eli Lilly for like fucking murdering people by not making this accessible. They're like, oh no, it's not us. You see, it's the pharmacy benefit managers, and there's this shakedown, and they're in the middle. And so it's like, dude, who the fuck are they? Like, you're the ones who set the price at the end of the day. It's like the dog pointing at like the leash that's made out of elastic and saying, look, this leash doesn't work. It's not holding me in the spot. It's like, well, you also are running away. So like maybe don't do that. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's it's really so many people in this uh I hear it brought up all the time in these arguments about the insulin pricing and like all the time people fucking fall for it too they'll be like well what about pharmacy benefit managers I'm like dude get that fucking idea out of your head like honestly you can break it down much simpler than that insulin manufacturers charge way too much that's fucked up but like they're allowed to do that because of the lack of regulation or whatever like the companies set the fucking rules because they pay off all the politicians like basically fucking like 90% of the politicians who are in who in Congress are like getting kickbacks and getting yeah. fucking money to like craft a law a certain way. And then they only fucking care about us when they're, when they're running for office and then magically they're like, Oh yeah, no, <laughs> we're going to get into, I know we took all this money from Eli Lilly, but we're going to get into office and then we're going to like lower insulin, like, like fucking Joe Biden took more money from the insulin manufacturers than Trump did. And then he gets in like, Oh, don't worry. We're going to solve this. all. you know, sure it's like will. people, people <laughs> like, why are you pissed off? Like how many pharmacy benefit managers are there? You know what I mean? It's like starts with like the government, like the way the government structured that like allows these fucking rules to like play out this way. And then of course you can get pissed off at the corporations for taking advantage of that. But again, they don't set the fucking rules. Yeah. So I don't know. I just, I just feel like it's a place for people to get lost in all this and be like, well, I guess it's complicated, you know, right, like, right. you know, it it's is not, complicated. it's not, it's not, it's not as complicated as it seems like at the end of the day. No, yeah, it's not complicated at all. Israel episode when I was talking about that saying like everybody's like oh it's complicated it's really not that complicated you just made you think it is sorry word yeah no it's not complicated at all here on the turn leftist podcast we can boil it down to that's <laughs> capitalism and that's the fucking problem 100% so continuing this article finally as insurance companies feel the squeeze of rising drug and healthcare costs and strive to maximize profits of their own they've shifted more and more healthcare costs onto policyholders themselves average deductibles have quadrupled in the past decade Nearly half of all people with employer-based insurance have high-deductible plans, and co-pays have risen or been replaced with co-insurance, a frequently higher percentage of the overall price. Taken altogether, the deterioration of insurance quality and rising list prices means that individual patients are bearing more and more of the brunt of high-drug costs. In other words, $275 isn't just the jumping-off point for an opaque back-and-forth negotiation between Lilly insurers. It's the amount that untold numbers of diabetics pay out of pocket for a few days' worth of medication to stay alive. Earlier in the article, in the part that I skipped, that $275 figure was only mentioned because this woman, she's a, a diabetes patient, she said she remembered going to the pharmacy and getting a dose of insulin for $25 10 years before. So in that 10 years, it went up from $25 to $275. So. Yeah. And if you look at those at, at that time period when it happened, that's when fucking Obama was president. That's when Obamacare rolled out. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm fucking glad that, you know, I can't be denied now for having a pre-existing condition or whatever. I mean, that's huge. But that happened when Obama was president. So this idea that like Democrats are going to get in and save the fucking day or something is totally fucking crazy. And I think yeah. there are so many people who still keep falling for it. They're like, they're victims of the system and they keep like thinking it's because of one party or the other or something. But at the end of the day, no, it's just because these corporations own the entire fucking government. Yeah. 
Let me see. I think I got through most of the stuff, at least that's relevant from this article. I'll just sort of skip to the end so we can talk about that ending that I mentioned. Let's see. So for her part, Nicole Smith-Holt no longer has a relative who needs insulin, but has stayed to fight for others. In early May, she joined eight members of the Minnesota chapter of Insulin for All on a so-called, quote, caravan to Canada, a five-hour trip across the border to demonstrate the pressures on diabetes patients in the United States. Once they arrived, the same vials of insulin that retail for nearly $300 here were being sold for $30 a piece. Smith-Holt didn't need any insulin, but bought some as a memento. Quote, if I had known that by driving five hours north that I could have saved my son's life for a couple hundred dollars, then he would still be here. Because I would have crawled, I would have swam, I would have biked, I would have done whatever I had to do to get there. Yeah, it's ridiculous shit, dude. So, um, sorry, go ahead, David. I was just going to say, like, these stories are like, you know, because I'm pretty, obviously, I'm like pretty connected to that community online, like, and there's a few of these fucking stories that you hear about, like every year, yeah. every year you hear some story about how someone slipped through the cracks. And like, I know it could have easily happened to me. I wasn't insured when I was diagnosed with diabetes and, and I couldn't enroll in insurance because it wasn't January. Mm. What happens if you get fucking diagnosed with this disease in February or in March or something like that? And you have to wait an entire year to get, to even get onto an insurance you know, plan. Like you hear these stories constantly and those are just the ones you hear about. What about all the people who are like undocumented? What about all the people who don't speak English? Like this has happened to, they've fallen through the cracks. Like there's gotta be, I don't know how many people a year it's happening to in the U S it should be zero, but you hear these cases all the time and it's fucking obviously pretty, pretty upsetting. Yeah. I mean, you're only hearing about the viral ones. You're hearing about the people who were charismatic enough that they could make an online account and get some views and some social media hits or whatever for their story. You hear about the ones where it's like the right, I guess, circumstances where it makes it super tragic. Like we were talking about like this kid who just could have been saved with an, with $30 and a five hour trip by car or something or $300 in the trip to the pharmacy. Rep. It's like you hear about those because it's so ironic isn't the right word, but it's like they were so close to being able to, to beat the system. And it's just such a shitty circumstance that kept them from it. Yeah, there's obviously thousands more that are happening all the time that you don't hear about. Yeah. And, and it's not even the, what we're talking about here is just these acute deaths from, you know, hyperglycemia from diabetic ketoacidosis because people are just, their blood sugar gets so high and their body just shuts down. They go to a coma and they die. It's not, it doesn't even take into account. I know lots of people that have spent most of their twenties or whatever, or like times when they didn't have money rationing insulin. So there are cumulative effects from that too. You might be going to say, are they shortening their life by doing that? Like, absolutely. Like, absolutely. There's, there's, you know, the reason I eat really good and try and exercise and like, don't really indulge that much. And like the same kind of vices that I used to partake in more is because fucking, you got to think about how is your life going to be down the road. And like those, you know, days and days on end of high blood sugar, it's going to ruin your vision. It's going to cause kidney damage. Like a lot of people end up on dialysis. You know, a lot of people don't, (laughs) The average life expectancy for somebody with type one diabetes is like 65 years now. That's with all the tools that we have, you know? So I'm not saying that everyone's going to have a shorter life. Like you take care of yourself. Like you you might be fine. I've I've met some people who are quite fucking older and dealing with this since the old days when they didn't have all this technology, but you know, those odds are not in your favor. And even just, there's a lot of like more mild cases of rationing going on where people just, they can't afford to constantly refill their prescriptions. And there's no doubt that they're doing permanent damage to themselves. That's they're going to have to pay for it one day. Right. So I have this other article that I want to read to you because I thought it was really indicative of what you were just mentioning, David, like people who are marginalized. And so we don't hear about their stories, like people who don't speak English or whatever, because this one is particularly 
I know it's hard hitting just like the other one was like, so I have a brief synopsis of the beginning of this article. The article is called Structural Violence and Noncompliance, a 49-year-old Hispanic woman with metabolic syndrome. And it's by Feline Andres at UC Riverside School of Medicine. And I thought this was a particularly good article because it actually has a happy ending for once. So this 49-year-old woman, she has all the symptoms of metabolic syndrome, which as I understand it, I guess it's like uncared for diabetes. Is that correct, David? Well, when they're saying me metabolic syndrome, what they're talking is about is like type 2 diabetes that again was caused by, it's where it's a metabolic condition where cells that are not designed to store fat start storing fat and then insulin can't drive glucose into the cell. So um, it's basically a, a way of saying kind of typical type 2 diabetes. Okay. So her first doctor has dismissed her for not taking her medications or exercising or having the proper diet. And he's calling this non-compliance. So the second doctor she goes to, this is the author of the article, she asks this patient enough questions to find out she doesn't live in a neighborhood safe enough to walk in. There are no parks, so she can't do the exercise that was recommended to her. The only grocery stores are a convenience store and a liquor store. She's caring for her two grandchildren because her son got caught up with a gang and they're very poor. So they're living on unhealthy foods just to get by, like mostly rice and beans. And she can't afford her medication consistently. She's unemployed and uninsured, and they depend on her husband's income as a painter. So this is like, this is not even like a, an outlandish story. Like this is just poverty in America. Um, and then just to quote the article, an individual's health is the result of numerous factors. In fact, clinical care only determines 20% of health outcomes. Health behaviors such as getting enough exercise and adhering to medication constitute about 30%, while the strongest determinants, accounting for about 50%, are social and economic factors, including physical environment. A patient's abbreviated, quote, social history focuses on select behaviors and only provides a glimpse of their true social environment. Thus, to trace the social and political root causes of illness, it is important to understand the socio-ecological model of health. Public policy shapes communities, which influences organizational, interpersonal, and individual factors. Victims of structural violence are often blamed for their own affliction. Mrs. H, for example, this is the patient in the story. Mrs. H, for example, was dismissed by her physician as noncompliant and thus not worthy of his time and effort. The label non-compliant codes a patient as unwilling to better his or her health. This disregards the socioeconomic and structural factors influencing their behaviors and instead places undue blame on their cultural beliefs and practices, further alienating vulnerable populations. Patients are too often shamed by care teams for behaviors which are out of their control. This in turn discourages them from sharing the challenges which lead to their perceived non-compliance. The article goes on to describe how doctors can avoid this by creating a welcoming environment for their patients and asking the necessary questions. She mentions peer-to-peer -peer interviewing and coaching or patient-led support groups. But the point is that like, this woman had no ability to stick with the program that her doctor set out for her, like the medication, the exercise, the proper diet and everything. There was no way she could have possibly done it. But the doctor didn't have the time or the inclination to know that or care. So he just dismissed her outright. And it's just like, what, what are people in that situation even supposed to do? It's, it's a huge problem. I mean, you hear about these stories all the time. And I, again, I, th I think this is, in the beginning, I was starting to get into it too, where it's like, in a sense, I wish that these diseases were called different things because it creates some kind of murky like environment where people don't really understand what we're dealing with and what the differences are. But at the same time, I'm afraid to go down that road too, because I don't want to throw these people under the bus who are dealing with fucking very serious life-threatening medical conditions as well. You know, right. just because their treatment's not as intensive as mine. It's not a fucking, it's not the Olympics of like who's suffering the most. Right. There's people who need this help. And like, so often again, yeah, people will just dismiss it because they're like, they didn't take care of themselves. They're not eating the right foods. They're not exercising enough or whatever. They think they're lazy. They're fat. You hear this kind of shit all the time. And like constantly, like these people, a lot of times also are afraid to go get help too. Like when, when they do, they go to these clinics or they go wherever to go get help. They're not eager to start them on medication right away. 
if they are, they can't afford it. And yeah, they're, they're blamed for their own condition. Like I'll give you another example that's fucking frightening. Like that I know has happened to a lot of people. Like I have one of my friends online in this community. She's a, she's a black woman. She's like, she's, she's kind of heavier. She was diagnosed, misdiagnosed with type two. She had type one. And they're telling her, they're thinking right away, oh, this is Af- this woman's African-American. She's a little overweight. So we're just going to be like, here, take this oral medication and exercise more and stuff. So she's eating low carb. She's doing all the fucking exercise in the world. Her numbers aren't getting any better. And it's like, they never properly screened her. Meanwhile, like her health is taking a hit and mm-hmm. she needed to be on insulin. Like she wasn't producing enough insulin. And gradually this process is happening where her pancreas is giving out on her, but they didn't even do the proper screening. And you hear so many stories like this. So many people think they have type two and they were just never given the proper screening. The doctors never ran the proper labs. They never actually confirmed what the problem was. They just saw that blood sugar is high. They looked at them. They made a fucking judgment about the fact that they don't exercise enough or they don't eat the right foods. And then they made a diagnosis based off of that. So it's extremely complicated. Yeah. How do you make sure that those cases don't happen? And then even if something is properly diagnosed, how do you make sure that they get the proper treatment? And how can you just give them like this, the same recommendation you'd give to somebody like me who lives in a fucking safe white neighborhood, I have access to whole foods and all this shit. Like it's extremely complicated. Yeah. Well, let me just, I'll wrap up this one because this one actually did have kind of happy ending. Like I said, so after learning more about Mrs. H's story, I set her up with free medication refills from our pharmacy and ordered lab tests to track her progress. As we had seen, however, those were not all the tools she needed. Fortunately, the free clinic has more than simply medical resources available. First, I referred her to our clinic's diabetes management committee, which provides free glucose testing supplies, additional education and support groups. Next, I connected her with the nutrition committee, which offers nutrition education, meal plans, and healthy, affordable recipes. Finally, I recommended she visit a stress management meeting in the basement of the church where the clinic is held. And perhaps most important of all, I encouraged her to become her own advocate and join a group of her peers in becoming politically engaged in her community. Mrs. H's story is just one of millions of Americans who have become victims of structural violence and suffered from the social determinants of health. With a clearer understanding of the complex factors that contribute to patients' health outcomes, I now aim to reunite the erroneously separated domains of medicine and social sciences, which I thought was a really good way to wrap up that article because like, those very much are tied together and it's not something that people think about. Like, If you ask any kind of libertarian what should be done about companies polluting mm-hmm. in a city, just for an example, because uh, it's easier to relate this than like type 2 diabetes being caused by social factors. But let's say this company is polluting an entire city, the air, the water, the dirt, whatever. If you ask a libertarian what should be done, their first response would probably be, oh, you should move away. Like individuals should just move away because that's what will we'll <laughs> fix that problem. Or they should like petition that company or maybe sue. I don't know what the, what the legal ramifications would be in a libertarian society, but they would have individual actions be the thing that takes out that company. And maybe people should boycott it so the company goes out of business. But the point is, there's no recognition of like systemic factors, like social factors. I purposely use that example because it's a very easy one, like I said, to to relate because it's like a company just fucking poisoning an entire environment. But like the other versions of this specifically related to diabetes are much more complicated where you have companies who are working to just sell people shit food that will possibly give them diabetes or jack up the prices of drugs that they need if they have the genetically inherited kind of diabetes. And it's like people are just fucked from both ends. And it's all because of profit and lack of accountability for anybody who actually has any money. And this is the only two problems, really. Yeah. And I, th- I think also just like, I think also there, there's a huge problem with that. Like people, libertarians would be the worst pr- people to ask about that. And, and most I always them. use them as the heel <laughs> example because they're the fucking worst. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's like, you can follow it to a certain point, but there's major gaps in the logic there for sure. And like, 
that's one of them that everything comes down to personal responsibility. But that's so that's not even exclusive to libertarians. It's just so deeply ingrained in our fucking culture. Like, for instance, my I'm fucking 38 now. I'm like just realizing and accepting the fact that I have like very bad ADHD that I have to have treated. There was such a stigma about it when I was growing up in the 90s that like my mom's like, no, you don't have that, even though she probably has it worse than I do. <laughs> like, right? Like there's such a stigma <laughs> for using medication for getting like certain diagnoses because it seems like some kind of personal failure. Like even my dad was diagnosed with type two recently, it happens to a lot of people when they get older now. And my mom's thinking is just like, oh, well, like we'll just go on walks and stuff. I'm like, mom, get him, <laughs> get him the medication first. Like get him, all he has to do is take pills. Like what he has to do is not what I have to do. Like get him the fucking pills so he can take care of himself. And then if he wants to change his life in any kind of way, he can. Like, I don't understand the reluctance from the very beginning to give people the medicine they need. It's just like, oh, take accountability for yourself. It's like, why don't you give them what they need first? Well, first of all, you are missing the actual medicine that's being taken away from us, which is the Lord. And what he needs, <laughs> get his ass to church and pray because it's, it's those fucking demons that are bringing that out in him. Yeah. You'd be surprised. I mean, I, I read a story from Canada recently. There was like some religious nut like that, where it was just like, oh, their kid has diabetes. They're not going to give them insulin because they think there's some kind of other way that like, you hear this kind of shit all the time. Yeah. The religious stuff gets involved in there as well, but it's not like it's much better. The kind of shit that's coming out of like the new age kind of scene, you know, there's just all this like ableism and, and all this like, yeah, they want you to try cinnamon, try these like different herbs and all this shit, like <laughs> essential oils. It's echinacea, bro. Yeah, I mean, but it, it all ties in the same thing, though. It's all about personal fucking responsibility, right? It's like we don't, we don't have the compassion and certain people are more deserving of compassion than other people or something. It's oh, yeah. Great. I mean, that's the biggest argument I've seen against COVID regulations and against Medicare for all from the right. It's just that people don't want to pay for what they consider to be other people's failings. And they really seem to believe that if you just live healthy, you just won't ever have to go to the hospital or the doctor. And I'm like, what fucking world do you guys live in? Like you people are literally fucking stupid. Like you were mentally not all there. I, I don't know yeah. what to do. With and how do you people. think insurance companies work? Yeah. Like you're paying for somebody else's health, like healthcare. But, like, but David, I'm glad you mentioned the, like the personal aspect of it. Cause one thing that you mentioned at the beginning and that certainly made me paranoid was that you said you were 34 before you even got diagnosed with this. So what were like the symptoms? Like, how did you even know to go to the doctor? Like what happened? Because I'm sure yeah. I'm not the only Tell one because Mike's like, freaking out right I'm now. I'm definitely fucking freaking out, but I'm sure there's at least one other listener who's like, <laughs> I'm oh, freaking out too. I can't wait for this answer. Um, so yeah, I never had I never had any serious health problems. I had mentioned that other people in my family within the years leading up to me being diagnosed, they were also diagnosed with like chronic health issues. And I was always joking around. I've been vegan for a long time and all this shit. And I'm just like, oh yeah, like I'm not gonna get anything. Like I'm gonna be the only one who doesn't have some kind of chronic disease. So how it started was and it took it took a while to set on. So like this was kind of a gradual thing. But for probably like six months leading up to my diagnosis, I was just feeling like fucking horrible all the time, like falling asleep. Like I'd be at a friend's house, I'd fall asleep, I'd wake up, it's two, it's two in the morning. Like I was having to go to the bathroom all the time. I was drinking so much water, like completely insatiable thirst, just drinking water constantly, eating tons of food, and despite that, just like losing weight. But I really thought I was just stressed out from my fucking job, you know? I was like looking into going to like one of those Vipassana like meditation places for 10 days, like yeah. the fucking silence my mind. Cause I'm like, dude, I'm too stressed out from my fucking job and shit. So like, I really didn't understand what those symptoms were. And at that time, like I mentioned also, I didn't even have health insurance. I work for a company that 1099s this, they claim that we're independent contractors. We're not it's for tax. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I didn't have any benefits. 
anytime I was sick, I'd have a flu or something like that. I'd just go pay money to go to the clinic. I'd go pay for whatever prescriptions I needed. So I just didn't have insurance when it happened. But this went on for like months and months and months. And there was a lot of symptoms I just ignored. Again, I just thought I was getting old, stressed out, whatever it was. How I was finally diagnosed, one day after work, I dropped a coworker of mine off at her house and I went to drive back and I like drove, I guess I turned in front of traffic. I like turned my car in front of traffic, got into an accident. It was a horrible accident, totaled my car, totaled the other guy's car, got out. I was kind of like, what the fuck just happened? The next day, I just went to another one of those like walk-in doctor clinics and I was like, I got in this car accident and I should get some x-rays and shit like this. And the doctor was like, she was actually very good. I got lucky that this woman actually cared. And she was like, well, why did you drive in front of traffic? I'm like, I don't know. It was an accident. You know, she was really pushing on that. No, I don't know. Maybe something is wrong. And anyway, she told me that I should get an MRI done because she's like, you should get an MRI because we need to see if there was any kind of internal injuries or anything like that. And you know, the MRI is like $800. And I was like, I'm not fucking paying $800. I was like, there's no way. Just give me the x-rays. I'll be fine. And she said, look, like, I still think you should do the MRI, but if you're unwilling to do it, what I could do is do a urinalysis. So I'll be peeing a cup. And if we can detect any blood in your urine, that might tell us if there's something more serious going on. So I took the urinalysis and then she like immediately was like, Hey, are you diabetic or something? I was like, no. She's like, well, you know, the sugar level in your urine is quite high. And I didn't know what that meant or implicated or anything. I was like, yeah, you know, like I was like vaping some like blueberry vape or something. She's <laughs> <laughs> like, no, 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 that's, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. So she comes and gives me a finger stick. And I was like, my blood sugar was like 470 or something insane like that, like super, super high, like way past the normal level. And what's, a, was, what's a normal amount? Normal blood sugar level is right around 100. So most people are walking around between Dude, I like don't know. 70 to 100. Mike's going to test himself after this. Ward's looking at me like I should know. He's like, why would you ask No, 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 not that. Because I, I know you're going to go test yourself <laughs> no, as soon as you get the chance. <laughs> no, I feel fine. I don't have any of this. You're going to like hit up your diabetic friend and be like, hey, I haven't felt constantly tired and fatigued like that since I was working. <laughs> that if you ever start, if anyone out there is falling asleep all the time randomly and drinking tons of water and having a pee, like fucking waking up multiple times per night, shit like that's going on, then like you should probably get it checked out. But if you don't have insurance, you should probably go to county hospital because you don't want to get a bill. Yeah. So there was a lot of the symptoms. So, so yeah. So she, she was like, look, uh, your blood sugar is quite high. She was like, you're pretty thin. What's your diet and your lifestyle like? I was like, I'm vegan, but I'm otherwise like not, you know, I don't really like, take that great care of myself. She was like, look, man, you probably have type one diabetes based on what you're telling me. You're going to need to go to the hospital. And so I went to the hospital. They took me in pretty much right away, started injecting me with fluids, stayed the night in the hospital for the first time in my life and uh, was there for maybe like 20 hours. They figured out I didn't have insurance and were like eager to get rid of me. And then I was handed a bill for like $18,500. Jesus. And then told that I need to purchase insulin, which was like $400 for like each type of insulin that I needed. So that was my introduction to uh, to this disease. Dude, that's a real punch in the dick. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, that's just, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't really know what to say. It just fucking sucks. Like, it just sucks from wall to wall. And it's like, this is obviously what we do here. Like we talk about why capitalism sucks so bad and we just get outraged at all the fucking failings of it. But it's like to hear these like really personal examples, it's like, it, it is really affecting. It's like when I was doing that interview the other day, talking to Diop, hearing about like people who are just burning to death because the city just does not care enough to like, put fucking fire prevention measures into low-income housing it's like i i don't know I, I just don't know it's like as much as i like to meme about enjoying the fact that the usa is dying because i'm glad that the usa will not be a country forever because it's such an evil fucking empire that needs to go away it does fucking suck to see all the people that have to suffer 
from it in the meantime. It's like a decaying empire is not a fun thing to be in. Yeah, I I think about that too. It it really even takes like the the fan like the fantasy of like being in some kind of like revolution, like kind of it kind of takes like the good parts of that fantasy away in, in a sense because it's like, well, let's say we get enough people, let's say sixty percent of people all of a sudden are fucking leftists and they're on board and they're like, fuck it, let's take it back. It's like, well, that's chill, but what am I gonna do during that time when I need to get supplies and shit like that? And like everything's just in fucking decay and the country's breaking down. It's like Yeah. It's a really difficult thing. Yeah, it makes it a lot more personal when you think about that. And it's not it's not like this is unique to diabetes. There's tons of people who are on oxygen or on other like life-saving medications or interventions where they need constant attention. And it's like, it's a scary thing knowing, you know, that the US seems like it's fucking failing. And it's I, I can't really imagine this going on much longer. It's hard imagining that and, and not I'm not even seeing any any kind of way out of that that's gonna turn out good for people like me. <laughs> Yeah, no, just like imagine the difficulty of just like trying to get dialysis done in a war zone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that we're talking about it though, because I think it's something that that people need to think about. Like it's fun to like LARP about all this shit and like just act like shit was all great, like back in the old country and all this stuff. But it's like I really hope that and I'm not super optimistic, but I really hope that one day we can build the kind of world that we all want to live in and that prioritizes the right things. And, you know, we have to look at that shit scientifically and we have to think about those vulnerable populations before we make our move, you know? And so I think it's really important to have discussions like this and talk to people who are affected by these things because it's so easy to think about things in broad terms. Like, of course, it's nice to fantasize about like the state being fucking taken over and, and something, you know, more justice oriented and more collective taking its place. That sounds fucking great, but we need to think about how are you going to make sure that the most vulnerable people are protected? And um, I think once you can make that argument, you're going to have a lot of fucking allies because there, there's a reason why I think my content resonates with a lot of people. Like people know like our system is like not set up for them and we'll fucking throw them under the bus and kill them. But it's hard to even imagine a viable alternative because it's like, what, what direction do we go in? You know, like, but yeah, I mean, these are big questions uh, that people need to think about. Yeah. How do you wage asymmetrical warfare in the Imperial Corps while maintaining hospitals <laughs> like, yeah. and critical life support? I mean, David, you actually brought up the exact point that I kind of wanted to bring us to to wrap up the episode, which is just that, you know, trying to bring it back to what people can actually do, like what actions can our listeners take if they want to like get involved and try and help with this. If there's organizations that they can join or they can donate to resources that maybe for people who are struggling to pay for insulin, like hearing about that Mrs. H example where the doctor recommended her for free medication refills is great. But that's obviously not happening for everybody with diabetes. I think it's unfortunately all too rare. Yeah, there's... um I think number one, the first thing is like, I would, I would really, really appreciate more than anything. If people who do not have the disease, like actually try to understand what it is, especially if they want to use it to try and like advance their political ideology or whatever. It's like, I really would like people to just try and understand what we're dealing with and trying to understand some of the intricacies of it. Because I think a lot of times the people are setting these rules or whatever, the people who like are legislating this shit even they don't understand that it's like literally life or death in a situation that can happen within days and i think people don't understand the severity of it even though they claim to that it is urgent and it's something that needs to be solved like right now so that's the main thing yeah. as far as like resources go there are some good organizations you really have to be careful like there are organizations like jdrf beyond type one which is nick jonas's organization oh i heard about that shit yeah there, there are a lot of organizations like that that you need to be careful about because what they've ended up becoming, even though it wasn't their intention, is they've ended up becoming like PR fronts for the insulin manufacturers. So, oh, geez. you know, so, so essentially like they end up getting in bed with the insulin manufacturers. They'll say, oh, there's problems, but go ahead. 
I was going to say, yeah, that's what they become. But even and maybe not even worse, but something to keep in mind is how they're started, which they are started as a tax shield. Nick Jonas just doesn't want to fucking pay taxes. <laughs> and you start a nonprofit to get out of paying fucking taxes. It's not a coincidence that all these motherfuckers get rich and then all of a sudden become charitable, but not charitable in a way that's mutual aid where they're directly helping others. Just charitable to an exact number that equals how much they fucking owe on their taxes. Yeah. 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 That, that, that whole situation is weird too. It's like that organization started, like we're not going to take any money from pharma. And then eventually they get someone in there. Next thing you know, like one of his friends is CEO. He doesn't even have diabetes. So he doesn't understand what the fuck we're dealing with. Then next thing you know, the, the insulin manufacturers have gotten their way in there and they're trying to make excuses for it. Like, look, we all in different ways make excuses for our worst fucking actions, right? Like it's just a way like our human psychology works. There's another thing yeah. we need to be aware of, like in any... <laughs> any sort of steps that we take and like building this new world that we want so bad but like these organizations have a tendency to turn out that way so and even the ones that are more homegrown like i'm a mutual aid organization like fucking power struggles can like emerge and stuff like this so my my point with all this is in this particular space i actually agree more with kind of the anarchist organic approach which is if you are suffering with diabetes add me on social media and if you need supplies or if you know anyone who has supplies that they can donate, contact me on social media. And the way that it works there is basically like within our community, we post somebody's like, hey, I need money. I can't afford insulin or I can't afford rent or I need some syringes or something like that. And we'll just start circulating these texts or these, these tweets across social media. And, and we'll usually have those needs met within a short amount of time. So like, I really think the kind of like, the more you kind of try and organize stuff, the more kind of fucked up things tend to get power struggles and all this kind of shit. So there are some organizations out there that are doing good. Like I think you mentioned from that article, Type 1 International, they're doing good stuff. There's an organization called Beta Cell Foundation. They're also doing some good stuff. Apart from that, there are some other organizations. I'm like reluctant to endorse them fully, but I would just say like, reach out to us. If you, if you were ever in a situation where you need insulin or you want to help or something like that, get in contact with the community through Twitter, through Instagram. And just network that way because we we help each other out. We understand how urgent these needs are, and we usually take care of shit very quickly. Like I think just being somebody who has this disease and understanding the urgency of it, like all of us are so giving in any kind of situation like that. So just reach out, reach out to me, and and I'll plug you into the network. I think that's the best thing I could say for anyone who wants to help in that kind of way. And other than that, just try and educate yourself so that you understand what we're dealing with. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that's probably the only hopeful thing I've heard tonight is hearing that people have these like. What do you call it? Like organically grown mutual aid organizations where they're helping each other out. Because, you know, as much as we like to talk about the Marxist and authoritarian left side of everything, if you're still in the imperial core living in capitalism, it's like, yeah, mutual aid is going to fucking help. Like anarchist versions of like yeah. mutual aid organizations are going to be the most helpful things until we actually get to the part where we have a vanguard party and are overthrowing shit. And we're so far from that that the anarchism is what we actually need in our everyday lives, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, it's, it really, I mean, once you're in this situation, it's really weird. It's like a whole different instinct kicks in just to protect other people who have it. It's not like, I see people all the time posting this shit online, like mutual aid is a radical expression of love. I'm like, no, it's not, dude. It's like Kropotkin's right in this respect. Like it's a fucking instinct. And you realize that when you're in a situation like, it's like, I don't have to love somebody. There's people in that community I don't even fucking get along with. If they need insulin, I'll fucking send them however much money they need or whatever the fuck they need. You know, it's not, it's not a matter of that. It's just the right thing to do. And, and it's an instinct that all humans should have. It's in really desperate situations, it tends to come out. No matter what end of the political spectrum people are on, we're pretty much all on the same page on this stuff. In other ways, in more broad sense, our instincts have been kind of toned down because of the fucking brainwashing that we have from the society we live in. But 
yeah, in these kinds of situations, I think the kind of anarchist kind of approach of just getting shit done peer to peer is is really the most effective thing. I feel like describing it that way, like when they say mutual aid is like an extension of love or whatever, it's like I feel like they don't realize that works really well for it's like a certain portion of the population. Like some people are really attracted to things that are built around love. And it's a certain kind of person. And there's another kind of person who is immediately like pushed away by that. Like the fucking libertarian types. Like if you start mentioning any kind of system based on like feelings or emotions or caring, they get disgusted. Like they literally hate that shit. But then if you start describing it in like cold, logical terms, even if you're describing the same thing, like even if I'm describing a system that's based on love and helping each other and cooperation and everyone gets taken care of and everyone puts in minimal effort, but then I describe that same system and I say, oh, it's based on utility and everyone gets what they need and puts in the least amount of effort that is uh, contractually required of them. The libertarians will fucking love that. And it could be the exact same thing, just in different terms. Yeah, it's another one of those things. I think that I think that Kurpotkin gets it right. Like in Mutual Aid, A Factor in Evolution, like he talks extensively like about there's that whole scene where he's like, oh, is it love that like, you know, causes the horses to like hold together and like protect like one of the it's not, it's fucking, it's, it's instinct. It's, it's not like, things are like love. this is just some shit that all beings do. If, if our, if our primary mode of survival was competition, we wouldn't have made it very long. Yeah. You know, primarily we cooperate and we help each other. And like, that's an instinct that again, has just been eroded by the fucking society that we live in, but that's not in, that's not in line with human nature. It's my She's being, would you have started? Yeah. yeah. I was just going to piggyback off what you said. I mean, it was like when we had the libertarians on the other, other day, I guess in a couple of weeks or months ago. <laughs> We brought them on and we described several situations in which regulation was working and they they still harped on regulation being the problem and like, you know, but it's the little things that come with it that actually make it worse <laughs> than it was to start with. And when I don't remember who asked, one of us is like, okay, well, what's your solution? And then they went on to describe how they'd tackle it. And I'm like, that is regulation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before we get sidetracked going down the shitting on libertarians rabbit hole again, because we will do this for another hour if you let us. Um, <laughs> David, go ahead and plug your social media again. If there's anything else you'd like to tell us about that you can think of, go for it. But uh, yeah, go ahead and plug your stuff again. So yeah, the, the Instagram is type one, the number one, type one dialectic and T1 dialectic on uh, Twitter. Cool. Yeah, again, this is super clever. I'm really a big fan. Uh, Sterling, go ahead and plug Twitter. Turn left this pod. Hell yeah. Turn left this pod. Ford? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at millennial leftist, common spelling. Uh, my backup at Millennial Marxist, and follow me on Twitter at Ward Lolly, W A R D L A W L E Y. Cosper, the Patreon is patreon.com slash existence underscore is underscore innocent. And then for everything else, you can check out the link tree that's link tree slash turn leftist. You can follow me on Instagram at turn leftist again because I got the page back, but I won't be using it. <laughs> I'm afraid, I feel like I'm forgetting something. Oh, the fucking Patreon subscribers. <laughs> Patreon subscribers. <laughs> I'm like, what am I forgetting? I know I'm forgetting like a huge portion <laughs> of this closeout routine I always do. So thank you again, as always, to our Patreon subscribers. Nicholas Maduro, Caitlin, Gus, Kyle, Madman, Robert, Garden of Nurgle's Delights, Comrade Rev, Cosmic Crown, Michael, Van, Liquidated Bourgeoisie, Taja, Sigmund, Stewart, Pete Saria, Colton, El Robert, Allison, Zach, James Aroni, Raven Enigma, Marvin, Kay Hrida, Not Drinking Water 69, James, Mad Boy, Christian, Elam, Venture X, Jared, the Australian one, Jared, Jaron has the best opinions, Bill Killionaires, Bro You Know Marks, David, Tristan, Devante, Your Mother, Charlotte, The Third James, 
Bishop Mew, Rural Marxist, John Bowie Fan 420, Kyle, Jean Claude Manhands, Mill, Phil, and Blackwater Janitor. Thank you all. All right. Well, thank you, David, so much for doing this. This was a lot of fun. It was exactly what I wanted to do. It was just like get fucking angry, get a little sad, and just talk about why capitalism sucks and why I got a lot be. of sad and it's a like, lot of angry. <laughs> <sighs> it's yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of both those emotions. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on, man. I think it's gonna be a good thing. Hopefully, I hope that I can send some people your way. I've I've seen this space since the pandemic started get completely fucking radicalized. Yeah. So I think I think it'll be good. There's definitely like some crossover happening right now, which is which is a great thing. Yeah. I mean, if we can radicalize some people that are like literally suffering the material consequences of capitalism every day and get them to see why this is happening, or if we can just get some leftists who are already usually pretty empathetic to suffering people to volunteer their efforts to help these diabetic people in some way. Yeah, it's all good. It'll all be good. So definitely, definitely. Cool. Well, thanks again, David. And thank you everyone for listening. Unless anybody has anything else, that's it. Later. All right. See you, everyone.